0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine, which features some of the most urgent and exciting political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today. This November, the magazine is hosting Bookmatch, its annual virtual fundraiser. In exchange for a donation of any size, N Plus One will make you a personalized list of 10 books based on your answers to a personality quiz. The books come recommended and blurbed by a host of great writers and thinkers, including George Shabala, Deborah Eisenberg, Siddhartha Deb, Kelly Reichardt, and me. They wrote that in the ad that I'm a great writer and thinker. I did not write that about myself. Anyhow, the selection ranges from Soviet stoner fiction to a new history of the Black Power movement. From film criticism to an experimental ethnography about oil rigs. Try it before November 30th and help support the work N Plus One is doing, the really essential work that N Plus One is doing. You can find the quiz at nplusonemag.com. That's N-P-L-U-S-O-N-E-M-A-G dot com. N Plus One is, quite sincerely, one of my favorite publications. Support them today. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today's episode is the second of my two-part interview with Richard Seymour, reanalyzing an emergent and fast-shifting political conjuncture. This conversation is a big one. It's about how the politics of what's happening in Palestine are reverberating throughout American and British politics, and reverberating everywhere throughout the entire world system. Before we get this conversation going, though, please step up to support The Dig with a contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. You listen to The Dig because this isn't just a podcast. It's a political education project that plays a critical role in providing the organized left across the Anglophone world with the smartest and most in-depth analysis of everything, every conceivable topic, everywhere, everywhere, all throughout history. That's why it's a priority for us that every episode be available for everyone to listen to with no paywall. We want everyone to listen regardless of your ability to pay. But that only works because those of you listeners who can afford to contribute do so at patreon.com slash the dig. We also have books, mugs, tote bags to send you depending on where you live and how much you contribute. And a contribution of any amount at all gets you our newsletter sent to you by email. Contribute now if you can and support this essential political education work. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Thanks. And here is Richard Seymour, a London-based writer, a founding editor of Salvage magazine, and the author of The Twittering Machine, The Disenchanted Earth, and forthcoming Disaster Nationalism. Richard Seymour, welcome back to The Dig.
1: Thank you for having me back.
0: Even as we discuss the movement in the US and the UK, all over the world in solidarity with Palestine, even as we discuss the humanitarian disaster in Gaza, the genocide, there there are still videos, images, slogans, different forms of clarity coming from Gaza, which say, we will not submit, we will not be moved to the South. There's a remarkable video of a protest in North Gaza where young men are saying that they would rather be killed than humiliated by eviction. And then there are also, of course, remarkable propaganda videos released by Hamas depicting guerrilla fighters blowing up Israeli tanks with shoulder-fired RPGs. Where is there a place to talk about the agency of the oppressed, even as we talk about humanitarian disaster? Can can these both frames of national self-determination and humanitarianism? Can they coexist in our analysis? Because I think, I think it's something that many people find particularly confusing and challenging right now in the aftermath of an armed action on the part of Hamas that included the massacres of many civilians that I find absolutely indefensible, even if also finding it almost entirely inevitable.
1: Exactly. There is inherently a tension between supporting the agency of a people um, and reducing them to supplicants, uh, humanitarian victims and so on. They, I mean, the, the Western media doesn't have a problem with humanitarian victims. I think Palestinians have been very clear on this. They want us to come on their shows and show our wounds and talk about how hurt we are, but not to give them the analysis. As soon as we start to give them the analysis, it's like, but you do condemn Hamas, don't you? And other such loaded questions. There is inherently attention there, and I feel it in myself because on the one hand, I can't look at that and see uh, you know, anything but that they are so over mapped, overmatched. They're so helpless. They're being surrounded by fire and blasting metal and burning chemicals and bricks exploding around them, buildings crashing on top of them. And all they've got to defend them is a bunch of 20-year-old men in trainers with rudimentary weapons who are very brave, no question. You run up to an Israeli tank and you put an explosive on it. Apparently, this is because these tanks have uh, some sort of mini Iron Dome system, meaning that if you fire a rocket at them, they'll neutralize it. But if you blow up that system, then you fire a rocket, then you can blow up the tank. That's why they're doing that. Or engaging in street-to-street, hand-to-hand fighting with uh, Israelis, either by Ghana or by another method. That is in no way going to stop the massacres that, that, that are on, ongoing, that are rolling. And, you know, there's an, a, an element of the, the a sort of desperado element like, yes, well, I'd rather die than live on my knees. But from the other side of that, if we're to take the agency of the Palestinians seriously, first of all, we can't ever succumb to this idea of an incorrigible indigenous wisdom. You know, where there's one point of view among Palestinians and we have to agree with whatever it is and we can never have a critical viewpoint. That would be absurd. That would be patronizing. That would be racist. Um, so, therefore, when we look at what Hamas did, like they did a number of things. It's obviously, there's a lot that's unclear about what happened on that day and how much of that was crossfire and, you know, whatever else. But it's clear that there were massacres of some magnitude, uh, orders of magnitude greater than what we may have thought on the first day. But there was also the fact that they burned, they, they broke down the prison war, the fence. There's also the fact that they occupied parts of land not held by Palestinians since 1948. There's also the fact that they took over Southern command. There's also the fact that they killed hundreds of soldiers. I have no problem with that. I, I don't think anybody should. And so it's a, it's a complicated situation. And I want to understand a bit about why these massacres ended up happening, because... Uh, Either they were planned, and uh, the Israeli government uh, produced documents which they say were found in the back pockets of some of the Hamas militants that they killed, conveniently laying out their years-long plans to do this. I find that highly implausible. And I have seen that the political leadership uh, claims that the intention was not to kill civilians, but then the political leadership also claims that they didn't know this attack was going to happen. So. Who knows? Adam Schatz uh, made the point that there may be may have been like the enactment of revenge fantasies. Like he points out that Mohammed Daif, his um, wife and children, were killed by Israeli bombs. Uh, he himself was uh, rendered partially disabled by Israeli bombs. And actually, you know, if you're a, a Hamas militant, you know lots and lots of people who've been assassinated or murdered by Israel. As well as, uh, you know, you know lots of families who don't exist anymore. Uh, because of an Israeli bombing campaign, and you are embedded in a population that is slowly starving and um, struggling every day because of the blockade on Gaza and the occupation, I think we would be cold and sadistic to pretend not to see the humiliation and the fury and rage that, that can give rise to and the will um, to uh, take it out on a population that, I mean, in this case, like, uh, you know, they killed a lot of people who were actually peace campaigners and, you
0: know, uh, who were enemies of... Um... And who are often disproportionately working-class Mizrahi who are, you know, as an aside, like the destruction of, of of the Middle Eastern Jewish diaspora is one of the great catastrophes, one of them, not to draw an equivalence to the Nakba, but it is a great catastrophe of 1948. And to have Miz- working-class Mizrahi Jews who, in some counterfactual less nationalist 20th century could have still been Baghdadi Jews or, you know, Moroccan Jews or whatever, as, you know, buffer communities next to the Gaza Strip alongside, thanks to the neoliberalization of Israeli society, Thai guest workers doing labor formerly performed by Palestinian you know given passes but since economically blockaded and contained there's some profound tragedy you know prof- layered layers of tragedy in what happened
1: 100 and we didn't really have uh much time to register that before the israeli government coldly abstracted away from the bodies still warm to launch this uh genocidal war you know i, I know that uh, jewish voice for peace and if not now have been trying to make space for this for the morning that needs to be done and i i know that um Perhaps on the internet we make too much of mourning as a political thing, but mourning does need to happen. And, uh, I, you know, I'm very moved when uh, that, the, that the, the words that you should say is, may their memory be for a blessing. I find that profoundly moving. And also that Jewish tradition teaches that every life is a world entire, so that we truly reckon with what it means when you kill one person, even if, you ha- even if it happens to be a part of a just war, you know, even if you are justified in killing that person, it means something. It's profound, and it's horrendous. So um, I think that that's something to take on board. But in terms of respecting the agency of Palestinians and you know, not to get too liberal about it, the problem with the humanitarian point of view is that as soon as the Palestinians cease to be ideal victims, as soon as they do stand up for themselves... And I'm not talking about massacres here, but you know, like a, as soon as they uh, pick up weapons and do something in their own defence, they will be vilified. And the other thing is that humanitarianism always has a tendency to uh, devolve into what uh, Gilbert Ashkar calls narcissistic compassion for people like us. You know, there's always uh, a sense in which it is bound up with the uh, racialized solidarities. We saw that with Ukraine. If you remember, there was shock. Uh, thermobaric weapons could be potentially be used by Russia in a country that looks, you know, people look like us. It's a society that looks like ours. It's a European country, that kind of thing. To the by contrast, you know, uh, Palestine, from that point of view, is just another third world shithole where we're not surprised by anything. So that that's the danger of humanitarianism. But um, I would think about this in terms of perhaps we could refer to Trotsky's uh, essay, their morals and ours, which despite its limitations, I think has some significant strengths. Um, one of which is that it's not that we disagree that it's a tragedy to kill another human being and so on. It's not that we disagree with the humanitarian sentiment and pacifism and all the rest of it. It's that they're utterly unhistorical. It, that's the essence of the Marxist method. It is to historicize. It's, um, people pay a lot of attention to the materialist side of it, which I think is actually a lot more ambiguous than uh, people are aware of. I don't think Marxism is a metaphysical materialism in any sense. But the historical side of it is the important part of it. That Whatever social category you face, whatever your goal is, there are a set of historical conditions through which that can be realized. And so realistically, how uh, are we going to get to peace in uh, Palestine? Is it going to happen? I mean, are the Israelis going to give up their weapons? No, clearly. Are they going to abandon their sort of deep psychological commitment to Zionism? No. Essentially, you've organized your ego defenses around this idea so that the attack on Zionism is an attack on you personally. More importantly, if you bound that up with the idea of Jewish survival, you, know, you have to remember uh, that for decades, I think probably the majority of Jews worldwide thought of, as, thought of Israel as necessary for their survival because who knows when another Nazi is going to come to power when we're going to need a state to defend us. So when you, uh, you, know, when you attack that, um, that feels like a personal attack. It feels very threatening. Ultimately, the only way in which they're going to begin to uh, question and part with their ideas is if through the sheer mobilization of Palestinian force, and I don't think that's primarily military force, but it will have a military component, I think politics will be decisive. I think the shift towards an anti-apartheid struggle is actually very important and productive. The isolation of Israel. Yeah, absolutely. Boycott, divestment, and sanctions. They've uh, vilified us and stigmatized us. They've waged lawfare against us on this axis. Well, fucking hell, you've just supported a genocide. We're not listening to you again.
0: We're not going to take... And it was already clear before that that Israeli political society, as, as you were saying, cannot reform itself. It is a thoroughly kind of right-wing dominated society with a protest movement taking place on profoundly zionist grounds that had no space for palestinian liberation in its imaginary of anti-authoritarian resistance in a way that was profoundly disturbing
1: oh yeah 100 i mean <laughs> the um the the protest against netanyahu i mean i'm all for people protesting against netanyahu um because he's a deeply dangerous man, but the fact that they couldn't say a word about Palestine uh, was very telling. And the fact that a lot of the, the the worst statements now are coming from liberal Israeli politicians. There was a fellow the other day who said that, well, the Palestinians, Palestinians surely could go and live in Canada or they could live in the Sinai Desert, you know. Uh, and he's talking about ethnic cleansing. And this was a liberal politician, you know, defend the constitution, stop Netanyahu, stop the coup. I really think that. Uh, Israel was always doomed to spiral into this um, incipiently fascistic state. And I use that term advisedly. I've been careful about how we describe right wing, you know, far right politics in regard to Trump and all the rest of them. Uh, you know, I don't think we describe the Trump movement as a developed form of fascism, but certainly there's an inchoate element of it here. Well, it's much more advanced than the state of Israel. The state of Israel is a state where the government recently passed a resolution saying that the police could fire live bullets on anti-war protesters, where the chief of police has talked about deporting protesters into Gaza so they can die there, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, the Israeli anti-war movement, all credit to them, they're extremely brave. They're getting beaten up by police, they're getting threatened by the far right, but they're an utterly um, embattled minority, they can't do it on their own. Um, and the colonial dynamic of Israeli society ensures that. Primarily, I think that's the issue that um, the colonial dynamic has always taken precedence over the class dynamic in all its uh, in in all its various iterations, you know, political, ideological, and economic. Such that uh, wherever there is a social crisis, I, me- I remember the mass protests in 2011. They were over housing and things like that, and it was felt that this might be part of the wider sort of Occupy movement, that it might have a radical a tendency. And maybe there was latently that possibility, but ultimately it was solved on colonial terms. Netanyahu said, you know what, if you want houses, we're going to build houses in the West Bank. There's going to be plenty of houses. We'll put money into it. We'll, we'll We'll put an army there. If you want houses, I mean, obviously that wasn't even a real solution to the Israeli housing problem at all. But it's a, an imaginary solution. It creates a kind of imaginary space.
0: It's revealing why the Tel Aviv protests never really became part of the broader movement of the squares.
1: I don't think, uh, yeah, because they can't really get to grips with that. And I think it's telling that uh, there are a number of societies, I mean, we often talk about younger generations being more progressive. There are a number of societies where that's true. Uh, th- that's not true, rather. France is one of them. The younger people are very right wing. Israel is the other and in israel the younger people are extremely right-wing like they're the ones who would gravitate behind uh ben gavir and the the other smoltrich
0: argentine youth have had me a little worried recently with malay yeah
1: <laughs> I, I mean i'm hoping i'm hoping that he's destroyed he's tanked his own campaign um he's looking a lot weaker but uh, you never know i mean kind of a bizarre figure. But yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, and so we can't take social demographic trends like that for granted. But I think Israel's moving in that direction because it was always destined to move in that direction because it could not break with its uh, colonial aspect. And as soon as, you know, I mean, I know that Labour Zionists, insofar as they still exist, will continue to say to the grave that it was 1967 that ruined it all. But 1967 was a bequest of Labour Zionism. It was an achievement of labor Zionism, and it was sought, it solidified goals that had actually been sought by Ben-Gurion and the labor Zionists. They'd always wanted to take the West Bank and the south of Lebanon and part of Syria. So I think that uh, Israel is trapped in this uh, uh, dynamic, and that's why it's very important that uh, the Palestinian movement, coupled with international solidarity, Coupled with the brave Israeli dissidents, you know, know, I'm not going to pretend that they are not very important, Um, taking all that together um, is organized against Zionism because it can't be reformed from within.
0: And really the cultural Zionists who had shortcomings, they did not have a a, a critique of unrestrained Jewish settlement under the British mandate in historic Palestine, which is a significant limit in their analysis but they did see that political zionism would never allow the jewish state to be a normal state that an ethno state was not going to be be functional or or stable or ethical ever
1: 100 i mean one of the things that uh i was shocked by um i only found this out recently actually was that martin buber in 1948 moved into edward Said's house so this is a man who as you rightly say he was extremely critical of nationalism and of the idea of the state idea he wanted uh, a jewish homeland which w- would be a center of spiritual and cultural ingathering for jewish people to revive themselves that was underpinned by a kind of nietzschean vitalism and you know i can actually if if he had been remotely realistic about what that meant for the palestinians i might i think he might have been able to you know develop uh, a coherent response to that but he wasn't the author of that i and thou who says that you know you're constantly in dialogue with god god is speaking to you through the things that happen to you in your life and you have to respond 1948 he's offered stolen goods and he takes it in front of god Uh, i i and i thought to myself why how could such a person do that and then i looked at what he wrote to um uh, mahatma gandhi when Gandhi challenged him on the colonial nature of Zionism, he said, oh, no, no, it's very, very far from the methods of conquest. Have you been paying attention to what's been happening there? I mean, he wrote this in 1939, one year after he's moved to Jerusalem for the first time. And uh, at the very end of the counterinsurgency campaign against the Arab revolt, led by the British, but involving Zionist paramilitaries. Uh, and at the end of a long period in which uh, Palestinian fellahin keep being dispossessed, you know, their land is being bought up by Zionists, and rather than the usual pattern where the new landlord lets you keep working, but you work for him, they boot them out. So they're, they're, they're list and they're suddenly they have nothing. And years in which um, the Jewish economy has been built up by specifically erecting a color bar against Arab labor um, and Arab products. He knew all that. I mean, his party, the Ehud party, which uh, Arendt also supported, and to be fair, people like Judah Magnus, who did acknowledge what had happened to the Palestinians. But he knew all that, and they opposed this. But when he wrote to Gandhi, he's trying to downplay it all. Arendt had the same problem too, the same blindness. And I really think that underlying this, uh, if I may, is that, um, I mean, this is a speculation, but uh, you're probably aware of that very good book by Lorenzo Veracini um, called The World Turned Inside Out which is a history of settler colonialism as an idea, as a utopian idea, and essentially traces it back to, as a, it's, an, it's a dream of modernity, which it traces back to the Quakers and the Cromwell-like colonists, all the way through to, you know, the Sansomonians and uh, uh, single-tax radicals and new communalists, et cetera, et cetera. And the idea is that, especially in moments of political defeat, revolutionary defeat above all, one steps sideways, one dodges an intractable and insoluble social struggle by going somewhere else, by expanding, settling and displacing. And I think that this really is what cultural Zionism actually entailed. Uh, And understandable reasons, because the problem was intractable in Europe. It's not just made up. Arendt saw very clearly that assimilationism of the old school completely failed. So what are you going to do? she said uh, she didn't agree at all with political Zionism, but it was the first properly political solution that had been found specifically to the question of what's going to happen to Jewish people given the scale of systemic uh, anti-Semitism. Now, I think Rosa Luxemburg uh, had some answers along these lines. I think, you know, I mean, I think the communist movement had a a better answer, um, but I can't claim that the result in the USSR actually uh, lived up to that in
0: the least but it all but it all either way ends in a zionist ethnostate state that's supposed to be a refuge for the world's jews that in committing atrocities committing genocide committing decades of nakba and apartheid in the name of all jews has i think just without question become one of the greatest drivers of anti Semitic sentiment in the world. And so when when Biden recently said something along the lines of, without the state of Israel, there wouldn't be a Jew in the world who's secure, not only is that outrageous in terms of the president of a country with a larger Jewish population than Israel saying that, you know, uh, statement that his own Jewish citizens don't actually belong here, it's holding, it's desperately holding on to this fantasy that what Israel— provides Jews as security when what October 7th and the aftermath makes abundantly clear is that it's precisely the opposite. That's the case.
1: What you are getting out of Israel, let's say you decide to take um, your right of return um, that Israel offers you um, and you go and live on the West Bank. You'll get resources and you'll get uh, adventure. You get the chance to kill uh, some Palestinians for sure. You'll definitely be given that, and, and steal their resources. You can go and move into their houses. Drive them out, move into their houses. You, you will have that adventure. Uh, no one can claim that you'll be terribly secure in all that, like the, because you've just um, gone to an imperial frontier where you've made a lot of people despise you, where people might want to kill you. I don't see much security in that. So I can't see that the, the, even what is sought there is security. And yeah, the the argument that, uh, you know, if it weren't for Israel, no Jew in the world would be secure, that is essentially congruent with the idea of Balfour, that Jewish people are alien, they're they're unassimilable alien force in Europe, and their proper place is somewhere else where they can basically withstand the tide of hostile Arabism. Uh, One of the problems, and Arendt was very sharp on this, that... Zionism has always predicated itself on the idea of an eternal Jewish substance on the one hand, to which one can only be either friendly or hostile, and uh, on the other hand, an eternal anti-Semitism without history or context, and therefore is basically uh, useless for the majority of the world's Jews who don't go and live in Israel. Uh, for a start. And when you say that it's one of the major drivers of antisemitism today, I think that's absolutely true. Um, I think that certainly we've seen flare-ups of the old variety of antisemitism, like Trump uh, and his movement uh, certainly uh, showed a a version (laughs) of that. Ironic that Marjorie Taylor Greene is one of... um, Uh, the persecutors of uh, Rashida Tlaib
0: when she's the one who believes in... Marjorie Taylor Grebe of of Jewish space laser uh, fame. Yes. Infamy. (laughs) That's exactly
1: where I was going with that. Um, But so um, we see that old variety of anti-Semitism. But for all that the so-called new anti-Semitism, which has been a term, I think, in circulation since uh, 1971 or something. First, uh, the Anti-Defamation League pioneered it and it's been it's been growing ever since. This idea that uh, the new anti-Semitism is actually radical Arabs and leftists and anti-imperialists and so on, and takes the form of anti-Sionism. For all that that is utterly cynical, it remains the case that probably if you're uh, in this world today, Israel is what there is to be anti-Semitic about, and what people are inclined to be, if who are inclined to be anti-Semitic, are inclined to be anti-Semitic about. Uh, obviously that can... Uh, sort of reverberate into other dimensions, particularly when we start talking about a, a so-called Jewish lobby or on a softer version of it, the Israel lobby. I'm, by the way, I'm not saying the Israel lobby thesis is inherently anti-Semitic. It obviously isn't. There's perfectly respectable expressions of that thesis, but uh, I don't think it's a very uh, sustainable thesis. But, but um, there's always a sense in which this idea, uh, certain anti-Semitic readings of uh, Israel and its power uh, an exaggerated version of its power and its subversive presence in national states. You know, the Israel lobby um, has, owns our parliament, owns our government, etc. Yeah, that's going down an anti-Semitic road. That's where you're, you're, de- you're trying to address a real problem, which is that there, there is this alliance uh, between uh, the imperialist states and the state of Israel, but you're getting it the wrong way around for a start. Israel is utterly dependent on the United States. It couldn't do half of what it does if it weren't for um, not just the the memorandum of understanding that is regularly signed, in which Israel gets a huge amounts of taxpayer money, in order to take uh, uh, since the Obama uh, memorandum exclusively American weapons. They can only buy American weapons with the money, and it always comes with clauses and provisos. What they use the weapons for, namely defending American foreign policy priorities in the Middle East. That's the structure of power. So there's always a sense in which people failing to understand uh, the real nature of that, but also coming up against the genuine perplexity that sometimes US and British support for Israel exceeds what would reasonably be construed as real politic can go in an anti-Semitic direction. And also, I think, broadly, if you're already inclined to think of things in terms of ethnic abstractions, you know, which is a very commonplace thing and you don't even have to be particularly right-wing to think in that way although it helps that uh, you're probably going to be susceptible to anti-semitic regions of that so yeah it's true i don't want to sort of come off uh, claiming that israel causes anti-semitism in any sense because um, uh, that would take us down a a dangerous path but certainly israel is um, israel and its um, brutality is the occasion for a lot of anti-semitism and also, quite importantly, as I'm sure um, you've already talked about in your show many times, Israel is in alliance with anti-Semites. I mean, uh, Haaretz has been reporting on Netanyahu, called him the cheerleader for the world's anti-Semites. Why? Because he hangs out with, on a global sk- stage with anti-Semitic politicians. And Zionism has always, always had that Willingness to do so from not just the Balfour Declaration and you know support from Winston Churchill, who really, really did not like Jewish people. Um, You know, when you can have a politician who talks about the good national Jew who goes and lives over there and the bad international Jew who stokes up revolution here, that's anti-Semitic. And uh, you know, they they required that real politic agreement, and you don't even have to go into you know Jabotinsky's meetings with Mussolini and all that stuff. In contemporary politics, they have close alliances with the Christian right, the, 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 especially a the Christian Zionist movement.
0: Who want the Jews to gather in the Holy Land so that the apocalypse can come about, which doesn't end well for the Jews in my understanding of their eschatology.
1: No, indeed. Um, it's uh, it's amazing that, uh, you know, uh, the, some of the most anti-Semitic politicians in the world, and I certainly think Trump is very casually anti-Semitic. You, you remember when, there were synagogues were getting death threats. This was back in uh, twenty seventeen, shortly after Trump was um, inaugurated, and he said, uh, "Yeah, well, they probably made it up themselves. Uh, that old thing, like that's 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 a Nazi trope, you know, that the, the Jews sort of make up anti-Semitism, just like they made up the Holocaust, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. So that's um, but the state of Israel loved him, and the people of Israel loved him when they were polled. So, Zionism and anti-Semitism have a lot of elective affinities, um, I would say, and a lot of coalitions and alliances,
0: including like, Victor Victor Orban. Uh,
1: above all, Viktor Orban. Above all,
0: um, Victor Orban. I mean, but it's, you know, the interesting thing about this is that, he's really like the great classic kind of classical anti-Semite, yeah? uh, like amongst the European
1: leaders. Well, and and not just Europe. I mean, look, uh, Modi has been doing this Soros bashing stuff as well. But then, so is Netanyahu and his son. They talk, you know, they talk about um, people, uh, the Soros group trying to destroy Israel, uh, and they construe that as uh, a global subversive plot. Um, the argument, uh, I think, probably has moved on. I don't think we have to work too hard to prove any longer that Zionism and anti-Semitism have these confederations. So, yeah, I mean, but we do have to, I think, work on. Um, this within the Palestine solidarity movement um, so that, you know, if bad politics uh, rears its head, that could lend itself to anti-Semitism. We argue it out. We confront it. Um, We're going to have to deal with that in the years to come because not everybody's going to reach the right conclusions automatically, even though we all know that uh, the second somebody says anything, even remotely out of line, and even if they don't, they will be vilified in the press. So we're going to face that complicated issue in the years to come.
0: Currently in the U.S., the the dominant line of attack from the pro-Israel camp, the, the, the latest move in the, the sort of politico-ideological warfare underway, is to condemn the protest chant, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And in particular, it's been a, a cynical tool to attack and attempt to marginalize Representative Rashida Tlaib, but also, of course, the whole movement. And a lot of people a lot of pro palestine people have have responded to this understandably by saying this is a measure to distract from what israel's is doing in gaza and and that's obviously true but i think there's something else happening here that's deeper and more nefarious which is that their attempt to make scandalous and unacceptable to make it scandalous and unacceptable to say this chant is fundamentally an attempt to make it unspeakable to call for the decolonization of the entirety of palestine and it is it is i think an attempt to establish acceptance of zionism as the legitimate starting point for any discussion about what's happening and thus to make anti-zionism prima facie outside the bounds of legitimate discourse as as though it's inherently anti-semitic and Interesting and very revealingly, this was also how the PLO was pacified from the late 1980s into the Oslo process. They were forced to renounce armed struggle and to, quote unquote, recognize Israel's right to exist, to, in other words, concede the legitimacy of Zionism and thus the legitimacy of Israel's claim to 78% of historic Palestine. What do you make of the role that Zionism and anti-Zionism especially after so many decades when the mainstream discourse has been about the occupation kind of narrowly conceived as post-67 and a two-state solution. What do you make of the role that Zionism and anti-Zionism, the role that that's all playing in the politics around Gaza right now, both explicitly and implicitly? Well,
1: I'm very heartened by the discussion that's actually happening because um, I, for years, the only respectable position has been two states. A Palestinian state, and okay, I will admit a Palestinian state would be a good start. I mean, it could be a stepping stone to something better. It could actually entrench long-term sectarianism, racial domination, war, etc. But it could be a practical stepping stone to something better. But the fact that um, people are actually being forced to defend this slogan and to say, this is why we defend it, this is what it means, and that the defense is being led by Jewish socialists and left-wingers. Very important. I don't think that uh, has been the case before in my lifetime. In terms of the Palestinian struggle, because this is, this is double-edged. On the one hand, it's aimed at the Palestine Solidarity Movement. So the, you have to accept partition as your ultimate goal. And remember, partition was uh, always rejected by Palestinians. And the PLO accepted it, I think, pragmatically because their strategy wasn't working, for, you know, the one-state vision. And they wanted to achieve some form of political base that would establish Palestine as a, as a as a reality. And I think Gadakami describes how really this actually began in the 1970s. So it began, you know, the rebuttal of the one-state position began with a number of declarations uh, throughout the 70s in response uh, partly to the political defeat of 1967 the defeat of arab nationalism and the growing isolation of the palestine movement um you can see a certain logic to that but it was uh, never a sort of a conceding in principle that uh, this was valid or justified but they were pushed into it and you're quite right oslo was i think edward Said's judgment on this finally was that arafat was offered two choices one was political survival at the cost of basically selling out his people The other was to return to some form of uh, struggle that, you know, basically outside the confines of Oslo. And he chose political survival because if he had uh, abandoned Oslo, then his legacy was done. And uh, so I think that's what happened. Obviously, um, the function of this um, vilification of From the River to the Sea, it, it is to dehumanize Palestinians because from the Palestinian point of view, uh, even if they would accept two states as a pragmatic settlement, and I think many Palestinians might, though it's hard to see how that would work today, from the Palestinian,
0: There's still the question of the right to return?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, and of course, that was always uh, foreclosed in the um, uh, partition talks. I mean, because ultimately Israel cannot accept um, the political reality of the Palestinians having existed and uh, their property having been stolen and so on. So... The peace talks are based on the idea of uh you know the old liberal idea of well two peoples one land how can we get along and emel saws's phrase for this was uh, we need a divorce i think that's actually quite a telling phrase but not in the way that he thinks um because i think what that uh, is really about is the fact that israeli subjectivity is utterly permeated by the palestinian haunted um it's haunted by the ghosts of the palestinians um, and
0: of the, of the Nakba, because it's all premised yeah. on, on the de- denial and disavowal of the Nakba, which is why this phrase is up until recently. is unacceptable
1: until recently. Now they're openly calling for it. We'll give you a Nakba. We'll give you another one worse than
0: before. Cause the right's always clearer about this stuff. The right doesn't disavow or deny the right leans into it.
1: Yeah. They understand, uh, it has a certain psychological power uh, to, but as, as far as the Palestinian causes concern from the river to the sea has always been perfectly respectable uh, and indeed an expression of the genuine heartfelt wishes of the majority of the Palestinians um, and so when you uh, invalidate that you're dehumanizing the Palestinians. but I would say that um, the fact is that today people are fighting on this axis in a way that they weren't before I think people more people see Zionism as the problem you know it's it's not just a case of the the Israeli government having a far-right government. It's a case of, I think, people recognizing that it has a far-right government for a reason. There is a, a, a you know, this is not just an accidental thing. This has been going on for a long time, this uh, drift to the far-right, not even drift, propulsion to the far-right, and uh, it's rooted in certain structural dynamics of Israeli politics. Even if people don't necessarily have a historical analysis of this, they would. it's intuitively obvious. So I think that although most people don't talk in terms of Zionism and anti-Zionism, I think, for, for, one, for, the, for those who are educated, uh, this is becoming more and more uh, a respectable and uh, logical talking point, irrespective of attempts by bad faith uh, Zionist organizations to shut it down, irrespective of demonization by liberal newspapers and what have you. And today's New York Times front page uh, main story is uh, exemplar in this regard, all about uh, the hurt feelings of Zionist students.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's fascinating on that point, how, how the attack on From the River to the Sea, how it's framed. It's a demand that Palestinians and those of us in solidarity with their struggle, that we completely capitulate to Zionism. And and it's being made in the language of injured grievance, familiar to us from the dominant dominant forms of identity politics, of liberal identity politics, that it makes some people feel uncomfortable or unsafe or that, that some people find it offensive. What do you make of this attack? In defense, in, in defense of a settler colonial ethnostate's violence being expressed in the idiom of a particular sort of identity politics.
1: Well, it's not new. I mean, I remember during the labor anti Semitism affairs that um, quite often when people would say, hang on a minute, that's not, why are you saying that's anti Semitic? For example, there was a whole argument about the IHRA definition of anti Semitism. It's not much of a definition, it has to be said, no. and how much of that was about defending the state of Israel. And uh, you would get some people saying, excuse me, you can't tell Jews how to defend. We'll decide how to defend, decide, define anti-Semitism. Um, and, um, you know, totally overriding the fact that the Jewish people are, like anybody else, a diverse bunch um, and have different views on this um, and may not uh, necessarily uh, benefit from being whipped into a communal line um, and disciplined. A lot of this argument actually... I noticed this at the time. A lot of it was about an argument within the Jewish community. I mean, it's a horrible. These phrases, the so-and-so community, are always a bit greasy and uh, patronizing, um, because really, uh, there, there's no such corporative entity. But it, a lot of it was about policing and disciplining left-wing Jews. Like so much of it was aimed at left-wing Jews. Like, for example, when Corbyn, a uh, Seder, Judas, yeah, with uh, with Judas the. Um, left-wing, satirical um, Jewish organization, uh, the, the British mainstream press went, uh, well, they're not real Jews, they're nutters. And so, you know, we had to put up with a lot of that. With regard to this, I think what's interesting, it's, it's more the imputation of um, a certain valuation of, uh, of life um, and entitlement. In other words, Palestinians are being fucking slaughtered. And we're supposed to be concerned about the Zionist students who were hurt by seeing pro-Palestine demonstrations. So it's not even um, what the Egyptian comedian uh, uh, Basim, I forget his name, uh, when he was interviewed by Piers <laughs> yeah. Morgan, uh, said, uh, what is the exchange value for Israeli and Palestinian lives? It's not even that.
0: Basim Youssef.
1: Basim Yusuf, that's the one, thank you. Uh, it's not even about the exchange value. It is about... There is an utter existential difference between the lives of, um, uh, in this case, uh, pro-Israel students and the lives of Palestinians. It is not even that there is an exchange value. They're utterly incommensurable. One is destined for death. As soon as they're born, they're destined to die. That is, uh, you know, um, that's what they're there for. Um, And that's why we keep hearing... Zionists say, oh, life is cheap for the Palestinians. No, what you mean is that you consider their lives cheap. You consider them fungible. You consider them a horde suitable for being wiped out by the means that we're currently seeing. The other side of that is that uh, those who um, are emotionally attached to the state of Israel their upset is really, really important. And now, I I know, I'm very aware of um, the way in which discourses of so-called white fragility have been used sometimes for a kind of liberal managerialism apropos race. Uh, You know, like it can play into like the politics of um, human resources to rely too much on these concepts. However, it is the fact that, you know, I mean, we're all fragile in one way or another, but there can be a certain weaponization of fragility. So, I don't doubt that those students uh, actually are upset and uh, do potentially experience that as really threatening that people are protesting for Palestine because of the way in which they've invested in the state of Israel. As you know, they, they've grown up being told that the state of Israel is their last line of defense, um, and you want to rip it away, and you're cheering on, you know, as far as they're concerned, the flag of Palestine is the flag of terrorism. Anti-Semitic terrorism. That if there were to be a new Holocaust, it would be done by Palestinians. That's they That's the You know. So no doubt they're upset, but that fragility, uh, though real, is one might say in relation to slaughter in Palestine, um, relatively trivial. It might seem. I mean, you know, I don't want to be heartless here, but it seems relatively small beer. I'm not that concerned by it. Uh, If I knew somebody, you know, like a friend of mine who is a liberal Jew, was to be upset with me for my position, I would be, you know, like interested and I would want to uh, reassure them and, uh, you know, have it out and all the rest of it. But uh, on the aggregate, get real. This is uh, if people were saying anti-Semitic things and people were upset by that, that would be one thing. But the whole article consists of people being upset by the mere existence of Palestine solidarity.
0: Yeah, th- this this conflict over, over establishing rules to control what is essentially a div- discursive conflict over real violence, over how to interpret real violence in Palestine, I think is related fundamentally to the how violence is made, is justified or delegitimated. In Israel-Palestine, Aaron Beatty had a really spot-on tweet recently where he wrote, quote, the basic colonial double standard of the Israel-Palestine conflict, conflict in quotes, is that any Palestinian violence justifies any Israeli violence, but no Israeli violence ever justifies any Palestinian violence. And once you see it, you'll never stop seeing it.
1: Uh, It's... um... It's one of those things that ideology works part by un- in part by unseeing. So these are pretty obvious patterns to most people in the world. And that's why, like, historically, the global south has basically understood and s- sympathized with the Palestinians. But, uh, I mean, I remember, I mean, it's not specific to Israel, that one, uh, because I remember when the war on Iraq was happening and the Iraqi resistance was demonized. They're all al-Qaeda, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, some pretty awful, grisly things happened, but most of what happened was that the Iraqi resistance movements attacked American troops. That was most of it. And if you're going to... There was a a, a a British military figure whose name I forget who once said, "If don't go to war if you can't take a joke. Meaning, if you're going to go to war, um, you might get blown up. You might get shot at. So, you know, don't come back and be a snowflake about it. Um, so, in other words, um, there's a sense in which... Um, uh, you know, we are conditioned not to see their violence as as legitimate, but that's only to the extent that we're conditioned to see them as in for humanity. Uh, in other words, not as people like us with similar predicaments, as we are conditioned not to enter into their predicament and not to realize that they often know a lot more about we than we about they. <laughs> you know, what, what's remarkable when you look at um, interviews with Palestinians is how extremely savvy they savvy they are about talking to anglophone media and about the nature of american politics for example um and how even in the middle of the horror that the uh, they're surrounded by they maintain a fairly good discipline in terms of how they express the nature of their of their position their perfectly legitimate cause so the the you know the ignorance is sort of one way here and it's it's not that me put it like this um i don't think most people are malicious in this i don't think most people like regard themselves as dehumanizing anybody they're just used to a set of uh, uh, protocols um and uh you know uh, assumptions about what is valid but what's happening now, because of this mass movement that we've seen that's just come out of nowhere, is that that is changing the parameters and forcing people to really think. And uh, I think, uh, obviously, the fact uh, you know the the telecontinents I was talking about earlier—the fact that uh, you can very quickly hear from, if you want to, you can hear from somebody in Gaza—and uh, you know, quite a lot of them speak very good English and are pretty well educated and can talk to you about what's happening. And uh, I mean, for example, my partner is on Instagram, follows um, a a young Palestinian girl who basically, until this war, was sharing recipes. That was her thing, you know, being an influencer. And then uh, suddenly, uh, in other words, she's a human being like you. And she's not defined by being Palestinian. She's not defined by being oppressed. She's interested in stuff like you are. And then the war happens and she disappears. And we don't know what happened next. And there, uh, in this war, I know that this has been said, but I think it's important to draw a line, uh, underline this. In this war, thus far, over 10,000 died on a conservative estimate. It seems likely to be more because there are many under the rubble, not accounted for yet. And um, the proportion uh, of them that are children, uh, is about 40%. And even if they are uh, the children are not killed, the new category that's been invented in this war, as I'm sure you know, is wounded child, no surviving family. And you see this, uh, you see the footage of this every day. Um, nurses and doctors in Gaza hospitals comforting a child who doesn't have parents anymore. And not just doesn't have parents, doesn't have grandparents or uncles, because the whole extended family has been killed.
0: And perhaps that child's having surgery performed on him or her without anesthesia.
1: Without anesthesia, stage four burns, limbs removed, faces covered in ash, gray, and uh, eyes that bear the look of terror, bodies shaking. And I know that we are supposed to be careful when we handle this stuff about the children, because that implies that the adults aren't Human beings too, but I have to say I do think there is something additionally wicked about targeting children. I do think that the added vulnerability of children makes it more of a crime. Maybe that's an invidious uh, comparison to bring into anybody's mind. I don't know. And the
0: and the normalization of it at the height of political power in the United States and elsewhere, it, it does intensify the the obscenity, the surreal obscenity of it all.
1: The scale. I mean, let's put this in context. The uh, rate at which people are being murdered, civilians are being murdered, is higher than in any recent war. It's higher than under Assad's bombs. It's higher than under Russian bombs. You know, we're, we're uh, shocked by things that Russia has done in Ukraine, and we should be. I mean, let's be frank. Um, Putin's war uh, has been pretty brutal, but doesn't even come close. I mean, in terms of the... the I mean, over the total war in Ukraine. I think it's 500 children have been killed. They've already killed over 4,000 in Gaza in just a month. How would you do that if that was just collateral? It's not possible. This is willed. Those are not just uh, worlds entire, but they are the hopes and dreams of other people who brought them into the world, uh, or who wanted to guide them into the world and grow up with them. And... You have just coldly and with astonishing grandeur and sickening sentimentality took to the skies and hurled fire and metal and chemical weapons at them. And then you go on television, as Mark Regev did, the former Israeli ambassador, say, and say, yeah, but how many of them are really civilians? The utter wickedness and callousness of this is uh, beyond my grasp, as is the nature of the Israeli disinformation campaign the fact that government officials are now putting out lines like talking about Pallywood, I'm sure you've heard this phrase. Pallywood uh, is is the idea that's always been put around by right-wing Zionists, that uh, the Palestinians have these studios where they mock up uh, injured civilians, and uh, they pretend, you know, it's like crisis actors, they pretend that they've been so badly hurt so that the West, gullible West, will send them money because the West is so easily seduced by Palestinian tears. I mean, it's utterly bizarre and perverted and an inverted version of reality. That's now being shared by uh, an Israeli government spokesperson on Twitter. Um, they shared... A-
0: and, then you, and then you hear Joe Biden himself questioning the Gazan death statistics.
1: Oh, yeah, because those wily Orientals are never to be trusted.
0: Um, of course it does. And this is another point about the from the River to the Sea discourse, uh, Yusuf... Munir uh, mentioned this in a essay from Jewish Currents that everyone is rightfully sharing from a couple years ago, what does from the river to the sea, to, what does it actually mean? It also invokes this notion that Arabs don't mean what they say, that they're tricky, because from the river to the sea, Palestine will be, see, will be free to argue that that's a genocidal discourse. I mean, I, yeah.
1: Sure, yeah, you're right. I mean, it it does, uh, and it wires into the old discourse about Islam and dimitude. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you recall, that was a big thing in the last couple of decades. Um, And uh, a lot of people who um, didn't know the first thing about Islam had heard of this term. And so, yeah, of course, but they're always like, it's the same thing as the anti-Semitic stuff about, uh, oh, they probably made up the synagogue attack. They did it themselves. You know, that's, it's exactly the same structural logic. And it's not even victim blaming. I mean, it's utterly callous. So this is the Israeli government saying, it's not just saying, you know, like the people were killing a terrorist, et cetera, et cetera, but invoking an Alex Jones-style conspiracy theory, crisis actors, and using footage from a Lebanese documentary that was shot to support Palestinians, to support this claim that, look, they're, they're, um, they're dressing these children up in fake wounds and so on, and spreading that to the world. And the first thing you would think is, who is supposed to be taken in by this? Is anyone supposed to be taken in by this? Is that what they're doing? Or are they, a la Steve Bannon, flooding the zone with shit? Is this intended to demoralize, disorient, and confuse? Is this supposed to get people talking about anything other than the actual murders that are happening? What What is the strategy at work here? The One thing we know for sure is that the discourse coming from Israel, along with the murders, is deliberately and calculatedly coarsening. It is barbarizing. The aim is to barbarize Moors. It always has been. This is something that the far right has been doing for years. When they complain about wokeness and snowflakes and blah-de-blah and free speech too, why can't we say what we think? What they're really talking about is how much verbal barbarism and aggression can we get away with? What can we be allowed to say? We have to barbarize Moors, And the point is to intimidate and humiliate and degrade And we're seeing that at a very advanced level uh, in this context. Um, One has to wonder, frankly, one has to uh, conclude, not wonder, that they have been fantasizing about this for years. This war has been waged uh, almost in a split second with almost no planning, almost no consideration. I think a previous government might have taken uh, about a month to work out its response. And the brutality has been uh, exactly... And, and then, you know, the, the, what, what, what else happened? They armed the settlers in the West Bank. And um, I think it's uh, Ben Gavir who's been trying to set up this citizens uh, protection committees, which are basically going to be like paramilitaries, armed paramilitaries working for the far right. And uh, they've been murdering people in the West Bank. These dreams, I say that dreamers have an alarming tendency to to come true. Well, these dreams have been simmering away for some time. Uh, Buried away in all Israeli dreams of plenty and freedom and well-being are these dreams of um, sanguinary reckoning, revenge, um, killing, getting rid of them, settling the problem once and for all. The speed with which they put that into action and the way in which it's been done largely through official military channels. So this is not like a pogrom, mostly. The pogroms are happening in the West Bank, but in Gaza, this is official. This is military strategy. That's been building up for some time. They've been thinking about that. They've been contemplating it. Even if they haven't been openly strategizing in their documents, I don't know if they have, about you know ethnic cleansing and mass murder and so on. It's been at least unconsciously on the agenda, and I think more than unconsciously. And that's where we are. Um, and the other thing is, uh, crucially, the majority of the Israeli public, that's where they've been. It's tragic, but that's the reality. I mean, majority of Israelis are not powerful people, um, you know, in touch with the imperial imperialist power. They're not powerful capitalists or whatever. Um, they're exploited like everybody else. Many Israelis are... are oppressed you know uh, on various axes but the one thing they've never been able to accept is the full humanity of palestinians um, they've never been able to get over that colonial complex so yes um the, these this has perhaps one could say to go back to the earlier question why palestine why has this exploded into a global movement because it seems to have resonated with so much that's happening elsewhere in india In the US, you know, I mean, uh, don't forget that before the pogrom in Hawara, and that was not the first pogrom, by the way, in in West Bank, you had militias out hunting uh, for Antifa and Black Lives Matter and shooting them and stabbing them. That was a very interesting moment when they started coming up behind people and stabbing them in the darkness on the streets or running their cars into them, lesson they learned from ISIS. This has been building up for some time, and I think people see some of their own dilemmas and predicaments in this situation. So it's not just Palestine, it's about all of us. And so when we talk about Palestine Palestine freeing us as much as us trying to free Palestine, that, I think, is partly what's at stake. These issues cut across nationality. They're transversal. But uh, the hopeful side, the side where there is possible redemption, is... We have also seen these trans coalitions. We've also seen these unprecedented mass movements. And this may be the end of Israel as a normal, legitimate state. And uh, it's done it to itself.
0: I'm Astrid Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast that helps us understand the past so we can organize for a better future. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Going for Broke, Living on the Edge in the World's Richest Country, edited by Alyssa Quart and David Wallace. From the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, Going for Broke gives voice to a range of gifted writers for whom economic precarity is more than just another assignment— As Gabriel Winant puts it, this moving anthology breaks down the barriers between experience and interpretation. Its contributors explore the underside of American society from many angles. But they do more than document hardship. They show how ordinary people who've been exploited and left behind forge understanding and solidarity out of the experience. Find Going for Broke at HaymarketBooks.org, where readers in the US and UK receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £20, respectively. Last episode, we discussed how the war on terror experience on the left has driven skepticism towards Israel and the US's claims and rationales for war and unprecedented resistance. To U.S. and Western support for Israel, do you think that that same war on terror experience that on the right maybe it's led to the opposite? This kind of more open, morbid embrace of genocidal of genocidal violence without without apology.
1: Up to a point, but uh, let's not forget that, uh, see, for example, there's a a section of the right that is very sceptical of uh, this war. Like There's people like Kanda Owens, who um, uh, was also sceptical about Ukraine and doesn't support this and actually called it genocide, um, which is quite unusual, but there is a section of the right that radicalised in a kind of nativist um, and isolationist direction. Let's not forget also that uh, the ways in which um, Trump embodied the savagery and brutality of the sort of ideas and emotions uh, generated during the war on terror were not really about reviving and morally rearming liberal internationalism. To the contrary, um, I think Trump would have been happy to wage a war for America, and he did obviously continue with Obama's foreign policy on various fronts um, with drone bombings and what have you. But um, it doesn't necessarily mean that they simply want to um, ratchet up what the liberal state had been doing before, but if you look at Trump's uh, support for Duterte and his alliance with Narendra Modi, fully aware of the tens of thousands that were killed under Duterte's death squads, and you know obviously unruffled by it, and uh, alliance with Modi in the context of pogroms, and if you look at uh, Trump's attitude towards domestic insubordination not just the support for militias but the deployment of uh, state paramilitaries um, you know federal paramilitaries against black lives matter i think that there is heightening of a kind of millenarian expectation which is quite violent and i think the difference between the liberals um and the trump supporters uh, at least as regards power is concerned, is that um, for the Trumpists and the rest of them, the battle is primarily domestic. That doesn't mean that they're not interested in imperialism, quite the opposite, but the battle is primarily domestic, um, and it's um, it's got a profoundly ethnic um, chauvinistic axis to it. So there is uh, an extent to which the war on terror, certainly um, in the way that Aimé Césaire would have anticipated, stored up the um, barbarism that um, enables sections of the right to openly declare out loud, level Gaza, destroy them, and so on. But it turns out to be uh, more complicated than that in that I think really... Biden is far more enthusiastic for what Israel is doing, albeit with their hypocritical lamentations about, you know, the fate of Gaza civilians, than, for example, Trump has been. I mean, Trump is campaigning. I haven't seen him mention much about this. You know, I think Trump was obviously very close to the Israeli far right, and the Israeli far right, Netanyahu and the rest, would prefer him. But it doesn't have the same moralistic uh, fervor. I think for President for for uh, you know uh, Trump or. Uh, any other far-right president. I think it's much more brutal rail politic. And that's one way of um, uh, understanding this. And then there's also, uh, finally, just in relation to this, both Trump and Biden have been presidents of decline, presidents of imperial decline and defeat. Biden basically, as we've said before, fulfilled Trump's foreign policy. One of the crucial things was withdrawal from Afghanistan. But also... Biden basically adopted America first as a foreign policy, whether you're talking about vaccines, whether you're talking about trade wars with China, or if you remember the hysterical uh, panic about spy balloons, which was really a version of the Havana syndrome. I think really a, a, a sort of a conversion uh, symptom of a kind of a sense of imperial vulnerability and panic. And also just an awareness that regardless of what they do now, China is going to be essential to the global economy in the decades to come. It may well be that China takes the lead in terms of its uh, sheer size. It was um an international relations theorist, John Darwin, who once wrote about there being four empires in the world. So they were the US, Europe, China, and Japan. Well, Japan isn't in the running anymore, but China is. I can't remember the data. I think, OK, so China is worth $19.3 trillion for its total economy the EU $16.6 trillion, the US $26.85 trillion. If you look at that, uh, and you consider this in relation to uh, Biden's decision to support a proxy war with Russia uh, in, in the context of Ukraine, it was an odd sort of decision, actually. I assume they thought it was going to you know, be cheap and uh, easy to manage. But um, Russia is not really in the running. Uh, you know, for all that it's uh, been inflated into the great Satan of liberal politics, you know, they cost Hillary Clinton the election, disinformation coming from troll farms in Russia, all of this sort of stuff. Russia is not really globally very important. And for the Chinese government, as Alfred McCoy has written, I think they quite like the idea of a, a humbled Putin who has to go to them cap in hand and, you know, basically uh, adhere to their foreign policy priorities. Meanwhile, we see that China is the one arranging peace deals. You know, China was in, I can't remember where the conference was held, where they basically organized the peace between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Probably not to the displeasure of the US, but it does suggest a shift in terms of their diplomatic balance of power. And potentially uh, China has been mooted as um, organizing a peace conference between, um, or peace talks at least, between Ukraine and Russia, which if that uh, happens now will be considerably to the disadvantage of Ukraine. So in other words, um, it seems to me that some of the pathologies we're seeing here are really pathologies of imperial decline. And were Trump to be re-elected, the risk would not be of necessarily of escalation in the Middle East. Uh, but of escalation on the front with China, and you know that's that's been building up for some time over Taiwan. The sort of liberal Washington establishment uh, is has been building up for that. I think Trump might want to go more aggressively on that, and he would surround himself with people who would be in favor of that. So that that is my read, roughly, um, very loosely, of where we're at.
0: You'd think that traditional right-wing anti-Semitism would pose an obstacle to the right's ardent support for Israel, and especially to them constantly accusing the pro-Palestinian left of anti-Semitism, including including the many anti-Zionist pro-Palestine Jews. But it really hasn't posed any sort of obstacle at all. We just saw Marine Le Pen at the so-called March Against Anti-Semitism in Paris. Does the fact that the right embraces Israel the way that it does and accuses the left of anti-Semitism so constantly... Does that mean that anti-Semitism is no longer the operating logic of the far right, of far right politics in the way that it traditionally was?
1: It it depends what we mean, because I think, uh, as uh, my comrade Barnaby Rain would argue, uh, what it means to be a Jew has shifted uh, dramatically in the post-war era. And there is an idea of uh, integrating uh, Jewishness, uh, to use that magnitude, into whiteness, So, for example, when people went to campaign for Jeremy Corbyn during uh, the 2019 general election, frequently you would get somebody who would, like, have Union Jack tattoos on them and would say, we don't like Jeremy Corbyn because he's for the migrants and he's anti-Semitic. Okay, what does being Jewish mean to you in that case? It means Israel. It means a military state. It means nationalism. It means being against uh, the brown skin folks, um, you know, uh, who one either seeks to rule over in imperialist fashion or to exclude uh, defensive nationalism. So there's that aspect of it. In terms of Marine Le Pen, uh, the interesting thing here is that Le Pen's logic, I mean, first of all, the fact that she was applauded...
0: And was doing the no, thank you, no, no, thank you, like hand-waving thing. Yeah, the, the sort of <laughs> waving at people like the Queen...
1: This is possible, however, and this is really important to say. This is only possible because of the collusion of the sort of state liberals. In this, in, in the French case, because Macron uh, allowed that to happen, drove it, wanted it to happen. Uh, he would prefer uh, Marine Le Pen as the official opposition. Prefers Le Pen to the left, obviously. Has banned pro-Palestine demos, all that sort of stuff. So, the, uh, but in the in the uh, context of the US and UK. It's because official liberalism basically colludes in this logic. That if you're for Israel, you can't possibly be anti-Semitic. And if you're against Israel, you can only be anti-Semitic. So uh, this is not, I would say, what frightens me about the situation is not the overweening power of the far right uh, on this issue or any other issue. It's that it derives its power from the either the weakness or the collusion of official liberalism. And so uh, that does, however, raise the possibility of a a real shift because a few decades ago, if you were a Jewish anti-Zionist, you wouldn't go around telling your um, relatives and friends about it because, you know, I mean, uh, you you might be ostracized. And that still happens, obviously. It happens a lot. But you now have a community. And part of the reason you have a community is because there's a lot of people who are looking at Trump one of the most pro-Israel presidents the U.S. ever had, and looking at Netanyahu and thinking that's not me, that's got nothing to do with Judaism. So the only reason it can appear so seamless, this alliance between Israel and the far and the far right, um, and including between Israel and far-right anti-Semites like Viktor Orbán, you know. Uh, is because of the way in which official liberalism has restructured the debate has gone along with the project of labeling uh, you know a new anti-Semitism, which means you don't have to pay much attention to the far right any longer. I think uh, in terms of the, uh, the the get back to the question you actually asked, the structure whether anti-Semitism structures the far right, I think, Anti-Semitism doesn't have to structure far-right politics, you know. I mean, obviously, you can argue about the extent to which Mussolini was anti-Semitic. Certainly, it wasn't official policy to be anti-Semitic until the mid-30s. I don't think that, uh, and obviously if you look at the Zionist far right, one would be merely um, tendentious or cute to say that they were uh, straightforwardly anti-Semitic. There's certainly a kind of inverted anti-Semitism as Orwell observed uh, when he was engaging with the, uh, you know, opposing the Zionist movement in
0: the 1940s. Or in the sense that like Eli Valley, the brilliant cartoonist, has so poignantly exposed the ways in which Zionism is is so opposed to the diasporic Jew.
1: Yeah, to an extent. Um, I mean, there's, there's a there there, but not much more than that. But in terms of the structural logic of the far right, I think what it needs always is a monster to personify the various crises and dysfunctions of the system. And there's a power in that, because uh, it's much easier to fight, um, you know, uh, a monster insofar as it can be uh, rendered flesh and blood, you know, there's an actual person you can kill, than to fight a system, which is quite abstract. I mean, obviously, I think this is an illusion, because what you always end up with in these uh, far-right demonologies, itself an abstraction. Antifa. I mean, what is Antifa? Communism. What I mean, communism, 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 and nobody knows what communism is. Uh, Trump goes on and on about if you don't want the communists to take power, well, uh, or if you don't, uh, he thinks the communists are already effectively in power. Okay, so what do you mean? What does this actually refer to? And it would be really convenient if we just needed to say that this just meant the Jew. That all they're talking about is Jews, you know. And there is an anti-Semitic legacy and lineage here, and I don't think that this is entirely moribund certainly when we talk about cultural marxism right and that thesis but it's not just that never has just been that and i think that really today the functional analog of the jew in the world system uh in terms of the imagination of the far right is probably the muslim but even that is imperfect because although there's certainly a claim that muslims are very wily and powerful and insidious and you know liable to um mislead people and um, uh, seduce people into dimitude and you know the love jihads uh, that are, uh, Muslims are, are reported to engage in in India, all that sort of stuff. It doesn't come with an idea that they run everything. So I think that structurally, this might ultimately be compelled to go back to uh, some form of anti-Semitism. I mean, f- for example, when you take the um, QAnon conspiracy theory, or when you take the conspiracy theories uh, in, during the Oregon wildfires in 2020, that Antifa had set fire to um, Oregon in order to wage war on Christian, white nationalist, conservative communities, all that sort of stuff. The logic there, as they made very clear, was that the arsonists were terrorists working for the Democratic Party. In the same way, you know, um, that uh, various protesters are uh, supposed to be the puppets of George Soros and the Democratic Party and Hollywood and the child abusing Satan-worshipping elite and all the rest of it. If you really want to personify that, there are strategies that don't involve anti-Semitism. For example, you talk about the Freemasons. That was the major form of uh, uh, conspiracy theory at around the time of the French Revolution. Um, it took some decades before it became uh, like properly overtly anti-Semitic um, and acquired uh, that sort of logic. So there are options there, and maybe there are possible innovations that may come along in these ideas. You know, when, when maybe it's the figure of the pedophile, you know, the elite pedophile that may come to stand in for uh, global evil. All I would say is that any conspiracy theory insofar as it abridges the necessary work of comprehending the system in its uh, concrete totality, insofar as it is a failure of cognitive mapping, as uh, Frederick Jameson says, insofar as it um, is a kind of dream work which sidesteps the depoliticizing censorship of liberal thought and enables you to engage in some way with the the sense of a totality, but in a highly phantasmatic way, it always is potentially anti-Semitic. It always has the potential to go back there. But maybe there's no reason, historical or otherwise, why it has to be that way.
0: The global geopolitical order already seemed like it was at a breaking point before October 7th. Now it's hard to even comprehend what's happening because so many complex forces are at work in so many different places, in the Middle East in particular, but also all over the place, globally. There's the complex balance of forces across the Middle East with Hezbollah in Lebanon, various entities in in Iraq, regional dynamics involving Iran and the Gulf states, so many factors at play with the U.S. parking uh, aircraft carriers in the Mediterranean. And then zooming out, there's the new Cold War with China, which has in recent years felt like he was being pushed to the brink of becoming a hot war alongside the already very hot proxy war with Russia and Ukraine. It feels like the U.S. empire or U.S. dominated geopolitical order, whatever terminology one prefers, it feels like whatever the system is that we've been living under, that it's so overstretched, like the contradictions are not only mounting, but intersecting, in complex unpredictable ways and that it's coming apart at the seams in so many places all at once and to be clear i'm not i'm not cheering this on without qualification because i don't think that something good necessar- necessarily follows from this current trajectory what do you make of where things are at and where they might be heading
1: what I would say, I mean uh, a few years ago, I mean this would have been around the time of the Syrian Civil War, my comrade Jimmy Allenson argued that we were heading towards an apolar world system uh, and I was very skeptical of this, but increasingly I wonder if that's the most likely outcome. Not so much multipolar as not really having um, a pole, um, so to speak, um, and that might be just a, a matter of a couple of decades. It's not obvious that, for example, there is a clear rival to the United States. I mean, China might emerge ahead in terms of uh, the size of its uh, economy by 2050, say, and it certainly has the advantage in terms of uh, its investment in green tech, obviously subtended by a massive investment in fossil capital, but uh, green tech, depending on rare earth, uh, rare metals, and so on. In terms of the the rest of the world there are a range of upwardly mobile middle income countries that could become much more important certainly india is becoming much more important uh, uh, and will be very important to any sort of resolution on climate change it doesn't seem like there's any anything cohering around any single uh, alternative poll in terms of whether that leads to anything good i think it might lead to chaos because I mean, on the one hand, you've got this planetary economy. Martin R. has written his wonderful book, The Planetary Mine, which describes in detail how a factory can itself be a global economy dispersed across the world, connected, you know, connecting different labor processes and mining processes, often automated through um, the cloud, through AI and all the rest of it and decentering the traditional sort of idea of a center of power in uh, Europe and the United States. So on the one hand, you have that. On the other hand, of course, you have uh, what we've already talked about, these telecontinents uh, that have been developed through global media, which creates new cultural configurations. And therefore the incongruence, the the failure of the sort of nationalist congruence between people, state, and territory, that's breaking down quite rapidly. Um, And of course, one of the products of that is the rise of small country nationalism, like, um, you know, Catalonian nationalism, Scottish nationalism, Welsh nationalism. There's a kind of um, centrifugal force at work here. And I think that what we could expect to see there, uh, because these, um, you know, so for example, Washington's ruling class is so determined to hang on to the advantage And because it seems to be constantly blindsided by events and unable to control the global system, it's not like the 1990s when essentially they could engage in colonial police bombings, you know, bomb Iraq from time to time, bomb Sudan or Yugoslavia or whatever, but not really invest any major commitment. Consider that it had the world system kind of wrapped up in a, a in a growing network of uh, globalized globalization institutions uh, above all the world trade organization we're not in that situation anymore the tendency is towards deglobalization don't want to overstate this but it is a trend and the tendency is towards uh, you know, on a global scale, there's the disarticulation of the old alliances that we're used to. And the United Kingdom is clinging on desperately to its alliance with the US because it it's, uh, you know, it's a declining country and that's its only source of relevance. But I just don't think the UK is very important to the US anymore. But these alliances are breaking up, they're, sh- they're shifting. But on a more granular level, there's um, a breakdown of collective fantasy. So one of the things that... Um, democratic politics is generally sustained by some sort of collective fantasy as to, you know, what we stand for, what we believe in. And that's invested in the idea of what Lucanians call the big other, who stands for society, who stands for the rules. And uh, we can all uh, invest in this fantasy and, and repose our trust in it. That's, that's broken down now. What you're getting is um, culture war fiefdoms, tribalisms, uh, on a very molecular level. And therefore, I think that the kinds of uh, wars that we're seeing, they're not just military conflicts. I mean, Gerasimov, uh, the Russian theorist, and uh, sort of was not the first person to notice that war isn't primarily or only fought with military force, that it can be fought with information battles, that it can be fought uh, by um, confusing and disorienting the other side by planting disinformation or, you know, uh, simulating grassroots um, uh, surges of, of emotion—that's been a strategy of national states for a long time. But nobody really is in control of this apparatus. You know, that's—it's uh, the the interesting thing is the internet was built for control um, and surveillance, computer to computer, and all the rest of it. But nobody really has control over the total system, and therefore it produces these. Uh, even what we're seeing now—the uprising over. A uh, Palestine or Gaza, we've seen numerous examples like this in recent years where things just come out of nowhere, where just when the ruling class thinks everything's stable and secured and nobody seems to be doing anything... Uh, there's an uprising in Chile that leads to uh, a massive struggle for a changed constitution. Doesn't work. It ends in defeat, but nonetheless, it pushes the politics to the left. There's the uprising of the Gilets uh, There's, you know, you get these uh, what I re- would refer to as meat space shitstorms. You know, the the logic of the online shitstorm brought into um, meat space, um, where you get these. Um, temporary conjunctions of people around a very simple axis of struggle, which could be boiled down into a hashtag, which are very ideologically and politically heteroclite, uh, very unusual configurations. And so one result of that might be that you could have a a rise in the relevance of non-state struggles, precipitating crises within the imperialist world system, Another is that you would have uh, the rise of sub-national struggles precipitating crises within national state systems. I think that's already, you know, th- those are trends that are already beginning to happen. Uh, and then the final thing I would observe about this is very fashionable to talk about coloniality. And one of the reasons for that is because it's, um, uh, it's been long delayed, that conversation. And so now it's time to confront it properly. Uh, but it's ironic that it's only possible to confront it fully uh, culturally and politically, when coloniality is basically um, passing out of, of the system. I really think we need to start thinking about where the, the future lies in terms of the global system. Um, I don't think Israel, for example, settler colonialism, genocide, et cetera, I don't think that's the future. Uh, I think the, um, uh, again, to refer to my comrade, uh, Jamie Allenson, he made a distinction, which I think is useful, between the genocides of formal subsumption where you subsume the labor force um, into the capitalist system through colonization um, and through uh, the spread of capitalist relations uh, in in the form of uh, sovereign violence. And the genocides of uh, full subsumption, where effectively, you know, we have all already been subsumed into the capitalist system. And genocides that are being organized today don't really have to do with that kind of colonial mechanism. Certainly in, in India, uh, you know, the looming genocide against Muslims isn't really per se about coloniality. Not to say that coloniality is totally irrelevant, like, but it's a residual f- factor. Um, so I think the crises of the future will be crises where the uh, blockages in the production system lead to efforts to resolve it, uh, for example, with uh, what we see in India, the United States, Brazil, the Philippines, etc. with a kind of muscular national capitalism, which involves uh, relinquishing all the uh, enfeebling, disabling, liberal, democratic, feminist, politically correct controls and mobilizing and harnessing people's aggression against vegans and cyclists you know and uh, feminists and trans people potentially also against jews but certainly also against muslims and all the rest of it all of that sort of stuff Um, and uh, the idea of um, overcoming these structural stresses and strains and overcoming the growing incongruence between people, nation and territory, uh, people, state and territory, by uh, organizing people into a kind of aggressive, muscular block against those who are ruining it, those who are holding us back, those who are causing democratic crises, those uh, minorities who insist upon Preventing us from having free speech, preventing us from uh, being able to drill for oil, you know, that kind of stuff. So I think the crises that we're going to see will be, uh, along these lines, uh, rather dispersed and not mostly, insofar as sovereign violence is introduced, it will be as an attempt to solve that crisis or those crises. Sorry, I should clarify for listeners, when I talk about sovereign violence, I'm using the Foucauldian term the idea of a centralized sovereign who are around to empower clusters. Increasingly, we're seeing neoliberalism has broken that down to some extent. Um, And increasingly, we're seeing forms of violence that are much more uh, dispersed and um, decentralized and uh, forms of racial domination, control, uh, race making that are sort of of a molecular capillary form. And so I think the crisis will follow that fashion.
0: It occurs to me now that I, that I phrased my last question sort of narrowly in the language of geopolitics rather than in the language of geoeconomics. And the economic dimension is, of course, key, whether we're looking at the new Cold War with China or the renewed processes of debt-fueled underdevelopment taking place across sub-Saharan Africa. How do you think through the geoeconomic and geopolitical simultaneously?
1: I, in the past, I would have answered this as a good Althusserian. You know, I would have talked about the uh, overdetermination of the various instances—economics, politics, ideology—the ways in which uh, economics is overdetermined by politics and ideology, and vice versa. But I've also always relied, to some extent, in terms of the analysis of geoeconomics on Gramsci um, and his writings on the Southern Question, for example, and the ways in—or, for example, Americanism and Fordism. You know. And this has to do with ways in which you organize uh, a particular space or territory and productive relations within it as a certain kind of container and uh, organize cultural factors and formations around that. So to take an example that um, is familiar to me because I studied it, um, the southern textile industry in the United States uh, in the um, segregated era, this uh, was a kind of geoeconomics based upon a moment in which Uh, It was possible to have a a large number of small textile businesses run on patrimonial lines in which, you know, you didn't have these giant uh, sort of transcontinental networks of corporations and transit and all the rest of it and in which segregation was a practical, potentially a practical reality and was a practical reality and a way of organizing the labor force. And around that, you got uh, various cultural configurations, not just the churches and the obvious stuff, but the idea of the the textile mill actually became itself a, a salient cultural touchstone that politicians talked about that appeared in music and so on. And so there was an idea of place, linked to the idea of a certain kind of industry and certain patterns of work and the idea of the, you know, the dignity of labor and, uh, you know, the the disreputable nature of anybody who doesn't work for a living, all of that kind of stuff. Obviously, that's all been shattered. And uh, in terms of geo-economy, globally, we're seeing that, for example, Apple is basically a Chinese corporation. So, I mean, it's headquartered in the United States. The profits go back to the United States. But in terms of the majority of its work and the labor process, it's a Chinese corporation. And there's a reason for that. Chinese workers are about half as productive as American workers on current trends. But because of the differential rate of exploitation, they're paid well less than half of what U.S. workers are. And so thanks to the interventions of the uh, uh, imperial state uh, under Clinton and Bush and Obama, Chinese markets have been opened uh, thanks to the transfer of technologies from the uh, defense and energy sector that was you know where uh, technologies that made up the iPhone and the iPod and all the rest of it were actually produced within the public sector, transferred to the private sector and then used as a, a means of building American capital's power overseas. thanks to all that. Apple has become a Chinese corporation, Um, and a whole series of US corporations are heavily dependent upon Chinese capitalism. Um, Well, that creates a very different relationship from, for example, that between, say, the United Kingdom and India uh, during the 19th century, because, uh, in in essence, um, since the British ran India under a military despotism, and since whatever goods were produced there were directed according to British-organized free market priorities. There was no real sense in which uh, India was ever going to come out from under its thumb, as long as Britain ruled militarily and politically. Well, it's not the same thing here at all. In the very act of trying to rope China into the world market, in the hope of uh, annexing it to a sort of American imperium, it's created a, a new global space, for example, uh, China is now has recently organized a kind of free trading block with a, a sort of a, a series of economies in the southeast of Asia that are collectively worth maybe $30 trillion, quite a significant chunk of the world market. And the organization of geo-economy, I think, along sort of market lines, always runs up against the logic of the state and its sort of relatively uh, fixed um, sort of grid of territorial spaces. And the result is that you get these crises where, uh, for example, China unexpectedly becomes uh, its own uh, sort of regional center, its own localized kind of imperialism. So I think that the way out in which I would conceptualize it to finally answer your question would be that... There's a sense in which it would be correct to follow Deleuze and Guattari to talk about de and re-territorialization. So the sort of flows of capitalism do tend to push against the uh, sort of oedipalized uh, formations of statehood and family and, uh, you know, community and all the rest of it. But on the other hand, there's always this struggle to reimpose a territorial uh, format. Um, And that's where you end up with these kind of uh, crises. It's just that I think one of the problems is that it's not just that, you know, capitalism is dynamic and pushes at the boundaries and wants to break down all the walls. Capitalism also, contradictorily, depends upon those boundaries, depends upon national states for... Um, subsidies, uh, organization of territory, for the production of the workforce, for the reproduction of society in its normal uh, state, for the creation of advantageous conditions, for the extensive reproduction, uh, extended reproduction of capital, and so on. So uh, on the one hand, yes, capitalism can push against these boundaries, but on the other hand, it kind of needs them. So that's that's the reason, I think, for this dialectic of deterritorialization and re-territorialization. And that, I think, is points us to the essence of the relationship between geo- geo-economy and geopolitics. Geopolitics is the dimension where you have potentially the most sovereign control. Like, you can always wage a war. You can always fire off um, some drones or j missiles or whatever. There is potentially there's the lure of power there. Whereas in geo-economy, things tend to happen for all that you try and back it up with diplomatic and military power and all the rest of it. Things tend to happen that subvert your expectations because the capitalist economy does not run along those lines. Competitive accumulation does not uh, cohere along those lines. So hence you always get these uh, stresses and crises.
0: What does this moment mean for the situation in, in Ukraine? The left, at least the American left, has been, I think, both divided and sort of silent on the question. And I think that's, I think it's because there's a lot of ambivalence because, on the one hand, the Russian invasion is clearly and just absolutely indefensibly wrong. But despite all that, it's impossible for many of us to see NATO as a force for justice in the world, particularly given the role that NATO played in driving everything to the point that led up to the war in the first place. But regardless of one's opinion about the legitimacy of sending arms to Ukraine, it's become very clear for a while now that the front lines are stuck in a murderous stalemate, something even, even Ukraine's commander-in-chief controversially conceded just recently. And I think about a week ago, there was an NBC News report that the U.S. and European allies are beginning to talk to Ukraine to push Ukraine, perhaps, toward a negotiated settlement, a settlement that would ultimately confirm, I think, that many, many Ukrainian and Russian lives have been wasted at the front. At the same time, Zelensky's staunch support for Israel has sort of made the broader geopolitical dynamics of the war in Ukraine painfully obvious. My question is, I guess, just like a very general one. What's, what's your current assessment of what's going on with the war in Ukraine, both in Ukraine and Russia, but also in Europe and, and globally?
1: I think that there was a big uh, uh, constituency of the liberal left that uh, entertained illusions about Zelensky um, and the nature of the Ukrainian ruling class. It was quite right to support Ukraine's self-defense against Russian imperialism, no question. That doesn't mean there are no further uh, issues to uh, consider. For example, that the United States and Europe and NATO basically rallied to Ukraine with a kind of shrill alarm banning Russian productions and uh, pr- products and uh, ramping up military budgets and uncharacteristically even opening the door to some refugees. How about that? The, the problem at the time, a long proxy war that would exhaust Russia, even at the cost of a large number of uh, Ukrainian lives, it was also clear that Ukraine was very unlikely to win a, an outright battle with Russia even with lot, you know the kinds of weapons that have been sent to Ukraine uh, which include weapons that allow Ukraine to attack Russian territory which uh, is somewhat controversial you know it's not surprising now that we've reached this stalemate but, I mean what the real surprise of the war has been how feckless Russia has been at least uh, uh, in the first year of the conflict, Russia's war-making prowess proved to be massively exaggerated, and also fundamentally, it exposed the irrationality of the decision-making process in Moscow. Like Putin, one had thought was brutal but basically rational. You know that in his handling of uh, uh, in, you know Russian imperialist interests in Syria, in Central Africa, in uh, his prior engagements with Ukraine he had proved to be or seemed to be a canny operator and therefore wouldn't do something profoundly stupid. Well, uh, this invasion, I think it's quite likely that uh, it will ratify something like a status quo, uh, a status quo ante, meaning, you know, large parts of Ukraine that uh, had previously been de facto run by Russia will now be de jure run by Russia. That seems to be the most likely outcome. And in fact, one of the problems here uh, is that Zelensky was, as you know, elected on a peace ticket and elected in a rejection of the Russophobia of uh, the prevailing nationalist establishment. He then turned and did the exact opposite of what he stood on and started to wage a culture war and a political war against uh, supposedly, and sometimes actually, Russian-aligned forces, given that a large part of the country is basically uh, oriented towards Russia That means that you're basically hammering down on any realistic democracy. Uh, And I'm not saying these pro-Russian forces are themselves very democratic, but democratic rights have been, even before this war, substantially curtailed. The other thing was that uh, in negotiations with Russia, uh, Zelensky did repeatedly, basically repudiate possibilities uh, that would have been available to him for settling it. Uh, based upon negotiating, you know, final status uh, with regard to the Donbass region and so on. So, I think that in part this reflects the underlying politics of the Zelensky Bid, you know. He was a comedian, he was uh, a popular figure, he stood for peace, he stood for an end to the culture wars, he wasn't a nationalist, he was a front man. I mean, that seems very clear now. And he got elected and he did the exact opposite of what he said he was going to do. I'm not saying that that makes him to blame for what Russia did in invading. Absolutely not. That's on Putin and the Russian ruling class and the brutal way in which they've waged that war. God knows it's not as brutal as what's being done to Gaza, but it was uh, it's awful enough. And, uh, you know, it should dispel any illusions that some parts of the left may have had that Putin was a countervailing force to US imperialism. Quite the contrary. But it now seems, I mean, my read of it is that Biden has bitten off more than he can chew on a number of fronts. You know, you can have uh, a proxy war in Ukraine in the hope that maybe Russia will suffer some sort of humiliation, and that will enable you to get on with, as long as you're not fighting directly yourself, that will enable you to get on with pursuing the Cold War with China. But if you also have a war in the Middle East, which you might, you, you consider that you might have to get involved in, suddenly you've got several different fronts. I mean, I think the Chinese ruling class must be very happy with the current uh, situation in the Middle East. I mean, I don't think they care one way or another about Palestine or Israel, but what they probably are interested in is the fact that the US is blowing more of its um, uh, geopolitical capital and is wasting uh, a lot of money, I mean, just in terms of pure rail politic, money and arms, on a front line that, in terms of the global system, in geo-economic terms, the terms that uh, that the state of China cares about, it's not that vital. It's not that important. It's important for historical and political reasons for the American ruling class and for the European ruling classes. But, I mean, strategically, uh, not that vital. So I think that they want uh, Ukraine to settle and sue for peace, largely because the situation is untenable for them. They can't uh, go on fighting on these multiple fronts. They have to triage their efforts. That would be my, put it no more stronger than this, an educated guess.
0: After the movement, of the squares. We of course saw this explosion of left populist parties and and experiments across the North Atlantic world. The Corbyn project, Sanders, Podemos, Mélenchon, Syriza to name to name some prominent examples. And while not all of these efforts have been defeated, they have been substantially diminished. And it seems to me plausible to say that one of the determinants in their defeat were national international or racial questions. We can look to the situation with Catalonia in Spain's federal system, which is playing out complexly right right now, or with Brexit in the UK alongside Corbyn's anti-imperialism. Or in the US, Bernie's struggle to reach into certain parts of America's multiracial working class during the primary, older black voters in particular. At the same time, anti-migrant politics powerfully shape politics generally everywhere, including, of course, in Europe and the United States. So it seems to me that questions of of race and anti-racism, the nation and internationalism, that these have been core questions for the electoral prospects of left populists in the capitalist core and central to debates over how to do this sort of left populist electoral project. What does this suggest? What does this last decade of evidence suggest about the place of these internationalist and anti-racist and anti-racist commitments on the left? Clearly, for both of us, they should not be abandoned. But what do you make of the obstacle that these sorts of politics confronting them do seem to pose to our left efforts to get into government? And how might those obstacles be confronted?
1: My read of the uh, this is that the last decade, was possible in terms of the rise of left populism insofar as international issues went into relative abeyance. Of course, there were global struggles. There was the bombing of Libya, for example. There was the Syrian civil war. Uh, and there was, at the outset of the 2010s, the internationalist moment with Occupy and the Arab revolt and uh, all the rest of it. But realistically, a kind of social democratic left populism was possible because people were largely focusing on... On things like redistribution of wealth, healthcare, public ownership, etc. I would also say that um, in terms of your read of the limitations, that is complicated because that wasn't really what uh, smashed Syriza, for example. Syriza was smashed by the European Union, a neoliberal establishment, and its own commitment to kind of Europeanism, I suppose, which is a kind of national issue of its own in its own right. I think, with regard to Corbyn, certainly Brexit played a central part. And I think that uh, the inability of the Corbyn leadership to come up with a creative answer to that largely was not due to not understanding the dilemma that Brexit posed, but to its um, need at that point, expedient need to keep the liberal wing of laborism on side and to make deals with uh, right-wing labor figures who ultimately undermined the project. But, I mean, and in terms of Sanders' inability to reach older black voters, it's not such a mystery to me. It's too left-wing for them. I mean, you know, I I, I read many reports about this at the time, and some of it was, like, along the lines of, well, when you interview these uh, voters, they say, look, white people are going to be white. I don't trust them. So I'm not going to, you know, like, waste my vote on some radical who's not going to get elected. That kind of thing. And, you know, there are Apart from that, it's also it shouldn't be assumed that black people are necessarily radical uh, or want radical change. Quite often, they can be quite conservative, and that's you know that's a given. It's in the nature of um, it's not in the nature of politics for people based on their identity to be politically conservative or radical in one way or the other. These are just broad trends. You know, like white people tend to be more conservative in America, but not over not ex- ex- exhaustively, overwhelmingly. So that, I would sort of caveat uh, those points in that way. But still, I think you're correct that we, the, these projects also reach certain limitations. I had been impressed by Sanders' willingness to open himself up to Black Lives Matter and listen uh, to the message and take it on board. Uh, he would never go so far as the movement wanted. So, for example, 2020, he certainly wasn't going to campaign to defund the police but he got better over things like migration and borders. When he had been actually quite conservative, you know, he had said that open borders were the Koch brothers' demand. Bit silly. Corbyn, in some ways, got better, and in some ways, got worse under these pressures. Uh, you know, one of the problems with electoral politics is that there's always this opportunistic temptation uh, to compromise with forces to your right because you want to reach out to the public mainstream, and also because you need to, to reach out to the dominant ideologies, the ideological state apparatuses, the media and so on. You need to keep open lines to some sort of idea of a common sense. And that can involve compromises with certain kinds of subtle racist predications or imperialist politics. Certainly, Corbyn compromised on NATO, on a trident, on a whole series of foreign policy commitments, even at the very start. So that was always there, and I was always limiting the subversive thrust. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, think you're right that it has been an issue one way or or, or the other for the left. But what I do think is that while some people thought 2020 was a lesson to, you know, abandon wokeness and abandon liberal platitudes and focus on a core set of class-only demands, you know, And Jacobin produced some research along these lines, which basically, it's it's interesting, one of the things they said was, you can actually talk about race, but you should frame it in universalist terms. Okay, I've got no problem with that. Universalist language, good, excellent. But how did they say it was possible to talk about race and race-based issues? Because the movements had changed consciousness. In other words, a movement that had nothing to do with electoralism And running up against the limits of popular consciousness changed things. And so there's always this tension in any electoral-led project between leadership and preference shaping on the one hand and tailing the worst of popular consciousness on the other. And I think that uh, maybe that's just an intrinsic limit of electoral politics. And given that we can't completely vacate the electoral arena... It's it's going to be something that dogs us. I don't think we can just overcome that. What I do think is that the mass movements around Palestine and Gaza, uh, in particular, are going to shift the culture in so in ways that it will now become uh, much more easy uh, and intuitively possible to talk about certain issues that previously you would have felt you couldn't talk about um, in electoral terms. So maybe uh, you know the dialectic between mass movements and electioneering is something that we need to think about here as crucial, whether we're talking about national issues, race, identity, or even the economy. You know, Even when we're talking about what's seemingly sensible, core social democratic demands. Uh, everybody wants universal health care, but are they going to vote for it? Well, that depends on whether there's a movement um, raising the, the salience and prominence of that issue.
0: Well, Richard Seymour, thanks very much.
1: Oh, God, thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to me all this time. <laughs>
0: Richard Seymour is a London-based writer, a founding editor of Salvage magazine, and the author of The Twittering Machine, The Disenchanted Earth, and forthcoming Disaster Nationalism. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, "...the profound hypocrisy and inherent barbarism of bourgeois civilization lies unveiled before our eyes, turning from its home, where it assumes respectable forms, to the colonies, where it goes naked." While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. Music by Jeffrey Bradsky. Our communications coordinator is Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Thea Rio-Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives and newsletters at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at the Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts, and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes or another such platform, please also rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling people you know to check out the pod. Please make propaganda for us, and do find us at patreon.com, and make a monthly or annual contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge.